This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, John Hagedorn. In other stories, I've shared the fact that my father was a storyteller and that he grew up on a ranch just outside of Cimarron, New Mexico. That ranch now comprises a part of Philmont Boy Scout Ranch. It was on the Santa Fe Trail, on which men and wagons constantly moved to carry trade items and merchandise from old Santa Fe to the American frontier. As a boy, my dad used to play in the ruins of an old adobe structure just down the road from the little church which was next to his home. The Boy Scouts did a little research on that old adobe structure and found out that it was Kit Carson's home, and they built a museum there to preserve Kit Carson's memory. It is from Henry Inman's book, The Old Santa Fe Trail, that I pulled this chapter on Kit Carson, one of the true heroes of the American West. The part of his life featured in this chapter is that spent on the Santa Fe Trail, I hope you enjoy the story. If you do, leave us a review for 1001 Stories from the Old West. Thanks. And now, The Old Santa Fe Trail by Henry Enman, Chapter 16, Kit Carson. Of the famous men whose lives are so interwoven with the history of the Old Santa Fe Trail, it has been my fortune to have known nearly all intimately during more than a third of a century passed on the Great Plains and in the Rocky Mountains. First of all, Christopher, or Kit Carson, as he is familiarly known to the world, stands at the head and front of celebrated frontiersmen, trappers, scouts, guides, and Indian fighters. I knew him well through a series of years, to the date of his death in 1868, but I shall confine myself to the events of his remarkable career along the line of the trail and its immediate environs. In 1826, a party of Santa Fe traders passing near his father's home in Howard County, Missouri, asked young Kit, who was then but 17 years old, to join the caravan as a hunter. He was already an expert with the rifle, and thus commenced his life of adventure on the Great Plains and in the Rocky Mountains. His first exhibition of that nerve and coolness in the presence of danger which marked his whole life was in this initial trip across the plains. When the caravan had arrived at the Arkansas River, somewhere in the vicinity of the great bend of that stream, one of the teamsters, while carelessly pulling his rifle toward him by the barrel, "'discharged the weapon and received the ball in his arm, "'completely crushing the bones. "'The blood from the wound flowed so copiously "'that he nearly lost his life before it could be arrested. "'He was fixed up, however, "'and the caravan proceeded on its journey, "'the man thinking no more seriously of his injured arm. "'In a few days, however, "'the wound began to indicate that gangrene had set in, "'and it was determined that only by an amputation "'was it possible for him to live beyond a few days.' Every one of the older men of the caravan positively declined to attempt the operation, as there were no instruments of any kind. At this juncture, Kit, realizing the extreme necessity of prompt action, stepped forward and offered to do the job. He told the unfortunate sufferer that he had had no experience in such matters, but that as no one else would do it, he would take the chances. All the tools that Kit could find were a razor, a saw, 
"'and the king-bolt of a wagon. "'He cut the flesh with the razor, "'sawed through the bone as if it had been a piece of joist, "'and seared the horrible wound with the king-bolt, "'which he had heated to a white glow, "'for the purpose of stopping the flow of blood "'that naturally followed such rude surgery. "'The operation was a complete success. "'The man lived many years afterward, "'and was with his surgeon in many an expedition. "'In the early days of the commerce of the prairies, "'Carson was the hunter at Bent's Fort "'for a period of eight years.' There were about forty men employed at the place, and when the game was found in abundance in the mountains, it was a relatively easy task, and just suited to his love of sport. But when it grew scarce, as it often did, his prowess was tasked to its utmost to keep the forty mouths from crying for food. He became such an unerring shot with a rifle during that time that he was called the Nestor of the Rocky Mountains. His favorite game was the buffalo, although he killed countless numbers of other animals. All of the plains tribes of Indians, as did the powerful Utes of the mountains, knew him well, for he had often visited in their camps, sat in their lodges, smoked the pipe, and played with their little boys. The latter fact may not appear of much consequence, but there are no people on earth who have a greater love for their boy children than the savages of America. The Indians all feared him, too, at the same time that they respected his excellent judgment, and frequently were governed by his wise counsel. The following story will show his power in this direction. The Sioux, one of the most numerous and warlike tribes at that time, had encroached upon the hunting grounds of the southern Indians, and the latter had many a skirmish with them on the banks of the Arkansas along the line of the trail. Carson, who was in the upper valley of the river, was sent for to come down and help them drive the obnoxious Sioux back to their own stomping ground. He left Fort Bent and went with the party of Comanche messengers to the main camp of that tribe, and the Arapahoes, with whom they had united. Upon his arrival, he was told that the Sioux had a thousand warriors and many rifles, and the Comanches and Arapahoes were afraid of them, on account of the great disparity of numbers, but that if he would go with them on the warpath, they felt assured they could overcome their enemies. Carson, however, instead of encouraging the Comanches and Arapahoes to fight, induced them to negotiate with the Sioux. He was sent as mediator, and so successfully accomplished his mission that the intruding tribe consented to leave the hunting grounds of the Comanches as soon as the buffalo season was over, which they did, and there was no more trouble. After many adventures in California with Fremont, Carson, with his inseparable friend, L.B. Maxwell, embarked in the wool-raising industry. Shortly after they had established themselves on their ranch, the Apaches made one of their frequent murdering and plundering raids through northern New Mexico, killing defenseless women and children, running off stock of all kinds, and laying waste every little ranch they came across in their wild foray. Not very far from the city of Santa Fe, they ruthlessly butchered a Mr. White and his son, though three Indians were slain by the brave gentlemen before they were overpowered. Other of the bloodthirsty savages carried away the women and children of the desolated home and took them to their mountain retreat in the vicinity of Las Vegas, New Mexico. Mr. White was a highly respected merchant, and news of this outrage spreading rapidly through the settlements, it was determined that the savages should not go without punishment, this time at least. Carson's reputation as an Indian fighter was at its height, so the natives of the country sent for him and declined to move until he came. For some unexplained reason, after he arrived at Las Vegas, he was not placed in charge of the posse, that position having already been given to a Frenchman. Carson, as was usual with him, never murmured because he was assigned to a subordinate position, but took his place, ready to do his part in whatever capacity. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages.
Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. And now, back to our story. The party set out for the stronghold of the savages and rode night and day on the trail of the murderers, hoping to surprise them and recapture the women and children. But so much time had been wasted in delays that Carson feared they would only find the mutilated bodies of the poor captives. In a few days after leaving Las Vegas, New Mexico, the retreat of the savages was discovered in the fastest of the mountains, where they had fortified themselves in such a manner that they could resist ten times the number of their pursuers. Carson, as soon as he saw them, without a second's hesitation, and giving a characteristic yell, dashed in, expecting, of course, that the men would follow him. But they only stood in gaping wonderment at his bravery, not daring to venture after him. He did not discover his dilemma until he had advanced so far alone that escape seemed impossible. But here his coolness, which always served him in the moment of supreme danger, saved his scalp. As the savages turned on him, he threw himself on the offside of his horse, Indian fashion, for he was as good doing that as the savages themselves, and rode back to the little command. He had six arrows in his horse and a bullet through his coat. The Indians in those days were poorly armed, and did not long follow up the pursuit after Carson, for observing the squad of mounted Mexicans, they retreated to the top of a rocky prominence, from which point they could watch every movement of the whites. Carson was raging at their apathy, not to say cowardice, of the men who had sent for him to join them but he kept his counsel to himself, for he was anxious to save the captured women and children. He talked to the men very earnestly, however, exhorting them not to flinch in the duty they had come so far to perform, and for which he had come at their call. This had the desired effect, for he induced them to make a charge, which was gallantly performed, and in such a brave manner that the Indians fled, scarcely making an effort to defend themselves. Five of their number were killed at the furious onset of the Mexicans, but unfortunately... As he had anticipated, only the murdered corpses of the women and children were the result of the victory. As a side note, I have read about that raid, and one of the most heart-rending stories from that raid came when Kit Carson and his men were about to bury the bodies, and found in the possession of Mrs. White, 
a pulp magazine of which, of which many were printed in those days, featuring him as a hero. The first thought that entered Carson's mind was that Mrs. White was no doubt hoping that he would save her, and he wasn't in time. As the story goes, he held on to that guilt for the rest of his life. Returning to our story, President Polk appointed Carson to a second lieutenant, and his first official duty was conducting 50 soldiers under his command through the country of the Comanches, who were then at war with the Whites. A fight occurred at a place known as Point of Rocks, where on arriving, Carson found a company of volunteers for the Mexican War, and camped near them. About dawn the next morning, all the animals of the volunteers were captured by a band of Indians, while the herders were conducting them to the river bottom to graze. The herders had no weapons, and luckily, in the confusion attending the bold theft, ran into Carson's camp, and as he, with his men, were ready with their rifles, they recaptured the oxen, but the horses were successfully driven off by their captors. Several of the savages were mortally wounded by Carson's prompt charge, as signs after they had cleared out proved, but the Indian custom of tying the wounded on their ponies preluded the chance of taking any scalps. The wily Comanche, like the Arab of the desert, is generally successful in his sudden assaults, but Carson, who was never surprised, was always equal to their tactics. One of the two soldiers who turned it had been to stand guard that morning was discovered to have been asleep when the alarm of Indians was given, and Carson at once administered the Indian method of punishment, making the man wear the dress of a squaw for that day. Then going on, he arrived at Santa Fe, where he turned over his little command. While there, he heard that a gang of those desperados, so frequently the nuisance of a new country, had formed a conspiracy to murder and rob two wealthy citizens whom they had volunteered to accompany over the trail to the States. The caravan was already many miles on its way when Carson was informed of the plot. In less than an hour, he had hired sixteen picked men and was on his march to intercept them. He took a short cut across the mountains, taking especial care to keep out of the way of the Indians, who were on the warpath, but as to whose movements he was always posted. In two days he came upon a camp of United States recruits en route to the military posts in New Mexico, whose commander offered to accompany him with twenty men. Carson accepted the generous proposal, by forced marches soon overtook the caravan of traitors, and at once placed one fox, the leader of the gang, in irons, after which he informed the owners of the caravan of the escape they had made from the wretches whom they were treating so kindly. At first the gentlemen were astounded at the disclosures made to them, but soon admitted that they had noticed many things which convinced them that the plot really existed, and but for the opportune arrival of the brave frontiersmen, it would shortly have been carried out. The members of the caravan who were perfectly trustworthy were then ordered to corral the rest of the conspirators, thirty-five in number, and they were driven out of camp, with the exception of Fox, the leader, whom Carson conveyed to Taos. Fox was imprisoned for several months, but as a crime and intent only could be proved against him, and as the adobe walls of the house where he was confined were not secure enough to retain a man who desired to release himself, he was finally liberated and cleared out. The traitors were profuse in their thanks to Carson for his timely interference, but he refused every offer of remuneration. On their return to Santa Fe from St. Louis, however, they presented him with a magnificent pair of pistols, upon whose silver mounting was an inscription commemorating his brave deed and the gratitude of the donors. The following summer was spent in a visit to St. Louis, and early in the fall he returned over the trail, arriving at the Cheyenne village on the upper Arkansas without meeting with any incident worthy of note. On reaching that point, he learned that the Indians had received a terrible affront from an officer commanding a detachment of United States troops, who had whipped one of their chiefs, and that consequently the whole tribe was enraged, 
and burning for revenge upon the whites. Carson was the first white man to approach the place since the insult, and so many years had elapsed since he was the hunter at Ben's Fort, and so grievously had the Indians been offended, that his name no longer guaranteed safety to the party with whom he was traveling, nor even ensured respect to himself in the state of excitement existing in the village. Carson, however, deliberately pushed himself into the presence of a war council which was just then in session to consider the question of attacking the caravan, giving orders to his men to keep close together and guard against a surprise. The savages, supposing that he could not understand their language, talked without restraint and unfolded their plans to capture his party and kill them all, particularly the leader. After they had reached this decision, Carson coolly rose and addressed the council in the Cheyenne language, informing the Indians who he was, of his former associations with, and kindness to, their tribe, and that he now was ready to render them any assistance they might require. But as to their taking his scalp, he claimed the right to say a word. The Indians departed, and Carson went on his way, but there were hundreds of savages in sight on the sand hills, and though they made no attack, he was well aware that he was in their power, nor had they abandoned the idea of capturing his train. His coolness and deliberation kept his men in spirit, and yet out of the whole fifteen, which was the total number of his force, there were only two or three on whom he could place any reliance on in case of an emergency. When the train camped for the night, the wagons were corralled, and the men and mules all brought inside the circle. Grass was cut with sheath knives and fed to the animals, instead of their being picketed out as usual, and as large a guard as possible detailed. When the camp had settled down to perfect quiet, Carson crawled outside it, taking with him a Mexican boy, and after explaining to him the danger which threatened them all, told him that it was in his power to save the lives of the company. Then he sent him on alone to Rayado, a journey of nearly 300 miles, to ask for an escort of United States troops to be sent out to meet the train, impressing upon the brave little Mexican the importance of putting a good many miles between himself and the camp before morning. And so he started him, with a few rations of food, without letting the rest of his party know that such measures were necessary. The boy had been in Carson's service for some time, and was known to him as a faithful and active messenger, and in a wild country like New Mexico, with the outdoor life and habits of his people, such a journey was not an unusual occurrence. Carson now returned to the camp, to watch all night himself, and at daybreak all were on the trail again. No Indians made their appearance until nearly noon, when five warriors came galloping up toward the train. As soon as they came close enough to hear his voice, Carson ordered them to halt, and going up to them, told how he had sent the messenger to Rayado the night before to inform the troops that their tribe was annoying him, and that if he or his men were molested, terrible punishment would be inflicted by those who would surely come to his relief. The savages replied that they would look for the moccasin tracks of the messenger, which they undoubtedly found, and the whole village passed away toward the hills after a little while, evidently seeking a place of safety from an expected attack by the troops. The young Mexican overtook the detachment of soldiers whose officer had caused all the trouble with the Indians, to whom he told his story. But failing to secure any sympathy, he continued his journey to Rayado, and procured from the garrison of that place immediate assistance. Major Greer, commanding the post, at once dispatched a troop of his regiment, which by forced marches met Carson twenty-five miles below Bent's Fort, and though it encountered no Indians, the rapid movement had a good effect upon the savages, impressing them with the power and promptness of the government. Early in the spring of 1865, Carson was ordered, with three companies, to put a stop to the depredations of marauding bands of Cheyennes, 
Kiowas, and Comanches upon the caravans and emigrant outfits traveling the Santa Fe Trail. He left Fort Union with his command and marched over either the Dry or Cimarron route to the Arkansas River for the purpose of establishing a fortified camp at Cedar Bluffs or Cold Spring to afford a refuge for the freight trains on that dangerous part of the trail. The Indians had for some time been harassing not only the caravans of the citizen traders, but also those of the government, which carried supplies to the several military posts in the territory of New Mexico. An expedition was therefore planned by Carson to punish them, and he soon found an opportunity to strike a blow near the Adobe Fort on the Canadian River. His force consisted of the 1st Regiment of New Mexican Volunteer Cavalry and 75 friendly Indians, his entire command numbering 14 commissioned officers and 396 enlisted men. With these he attacked the Kiowa village, consisting of about 150 lodges. The fight was a very severe one, and lasted from half-past eight in the morning until after sundown. The Indians, with more than ordinary intrepidity and boldness, made repeated stands against the fierce onslaughts of Carson's cavalrymen, but were at last forced to give way, and were cut down as they stubbornly retreated, suffering a loss of sixty killed and wounded. In this battle only two privates and one non-commissioned officer were killed, and one non-commissioned officer and thirteen privates, four of whom were friendly Indians, wounded. The command destroyed 150 lodges, a large amount of dried meats, berries, buffalo robes, cooking utensils, and also a buggy and spring wagon, the property of Ciarito, the Kiowa chief. In his official account of the fight, Carson states that he found ammunition in the village, which had been furnished, no doubt, by unscrupulous Mexican traders. He told me that he never was deceived by Indian tactics, but once in his life. He said that he was hunting with six others after Buffalo in the summer of 1835, that they had been successful, and came into their little bivouac one night very tired, intending to start for the rendezvous at Bent's Fort the next morning. They had a number of dogs, among them some excellent animals. These barked a good deal, and seemed restless, and the men heard wolves. "'I saw,' said Kit, two big wolves sneaking about, one of them quite close to us. Gordon, one of my men, wanted to fire his rifle at it, but I did not let him, for fear he would hit a dog.' I admit that I had a sort of an idea that those wolves might be Indians, that when I noticed one of them turn short around and heard the clashing of his teeth as he rushed at one of the dogs, I felt easy then, and was certain that they were wolves sure enough. But the red devil fooled me, after all, for he had two dried buffalo bones in his hands under the wolfskin, and he rattled them together every time he turned to make a dash at the dogs. Well, by and by we all dozed off, and it wasn't long before I was suddenly aroused by a noise and a big blaze. I rushed out the first thing for our mules, and held them. If the savages had been at all smart, they could have killed us in a trice, but they ran as soon as they fired at us. They killed one of my men, putting five bullets in his body and eight in his buffalo robe. The Indians were a band of Sioux on the war trail after a band of snakes, and found us by sheer accident. They endeavored to ambush us the next morning, but we got wind of their little game, and killed three of them, including the chief." Carson's nature was made up of some very noble attributes. He was brave, but not reckless like Custer, a veritable exponent of Christian altruism, and as true to his friends as the needle to the pole. Under the average stature, and rather delicate-looking in his physical proportions, he was nevertheless a quick, wiry man with nerves of steel, and possessing an indomitable will. He was full of caution, but showed a coolness in the moment of supreme danger that was good to witness. During a short visit at Fort Lyon, Colorado, where a favorite son of his was living, early in the morning of May 23, 1868, 
while mounting his horse in front of his quarters, he was still fond of riding. An artery in his neck was suddenly ruptured, from the effects of which, notwithstanding the medical assistance rendered by the fort surgeons, he died in a few moments. His remains, after reposing for some time at Fort Lyon, were taken to Taos, so long his home in New Mexico, where an appropriate monument was erected over them. In the plaza at Santa Fe, his name also appears cut on a cenotaph raised to commemorate the services of the soldiers of the territory. As an Indian fighter, he was matchless. The identical rifle used by him for more than thirty years, and which never failed him, he bequeathed, just before his death, to Montezuma Lodge, Santa Fe, of which he was a member. This is part of the prelude to this story, offered by Buffalo Bill Cody. He writes, The story of the old Santa Fe Trail, so truthfully recalled here by Colonel Henry Enman, ex-officer of the old regular army, in these pages, is a most thrilling one. The vast area through which the famous highway ran is still imperfectly known to most people as the West, a designation once appropriate, but hardly applicable now. For in these days of easy communication, the real trail region is not so far removed from New York as Buffalo was 70 years ago. At the commencement of the commerce of the prairies, in the early portion of the century, the old Santa Fe Trail was the arena of almost constant sanguinary struggles between the wily nomads of the desert and the hardy white pioneers, whose eventful lives made the civilization of the vast interior region of our continent possible. Their daring compelled its development, which has resulted in the genesis of great states and large cities. Their hardships gave birth to the American homestead. Their determined will was the factor of possible achievements, the most remarkable and important of modern times. When the famous highway was established across the Great Plains as a line of communication to the shores of the Blue Pacific, the only method of travel was by the slow freight caravan drawn by patient oxen or the lumbering stagecoach with its complement of four or six mules. There was ever to be feared an attack by those devils of the desert, the Cheyennes, Comanches, and Kiowas. Along its whole route, the remains of men, animals, and the wrecks of camps and wagons told a story of suffering, robbery, and outrage more impressive than any language. Now the tourist or businessman makes the journey in palace cars, and there is nothing to remind him of the danger or desolation of border days. On every hand are the evidences of a powerful and advanced civilization. It is fortunate that one is left to tell some of its story who was a living actor and had personal knowledge of many of the thrilling scenes that were enacted along the line of the great route, the Santa Fe Trail. Inman was familiar with all the famous men, both white and savage, whose lives have made the story of the trail. His own sojourn on the plains and in the Rocky Mountains extending over a period of nearly 40 years. The old trail has more than common interest for me, and I gladly record here my endorsement of the faithful record. Compiled by a brave soldier, old comrade, and friend. Signed, W.F. Cody, Buffalo Bill. Thanks for joining us today for this story, Kit Carson and the Old Santa Fe Trail. One of the chapters of Colonel Henry Inman's book, The Old Santa Fe Trail, I highly recommend you find. It's at gutenberg.org if you're looking for it. It makes for some great armchair reading. We'll return with another story from 1001 Stories from the Old West in two weeks. Until then, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.